Welcome back, everyone. On this episode, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. John Oliver recently just did a piece on big tech, specifically for companies, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. And this piece goes over why he thinks these companies are basically monopolies. They are abusive with their power. They're doing things that are harmful to the economy and to consumers. And of course, he's advocating regulation on their behalf. And what I want to do is I want to go through his arguments, give my reaction to them, and highlight how he's inadvertently, he's inadvertently creating a bull case, an investment thesis for these companies. Now let's go ahead and jump into this. The first major argument that John Oliver makes is that these tech companies are monopolies and they need to be broken up. And he highlights history, examples of how breakups help with this situation. And let's start with a tiny bit of history because in the past, the US has actually taken strong action to break up harmful monopolies. In the early 20th century, we broke up Standard Oil. And as recently as 40 years ago, the government took action against who else but AT&T, our business daddy who left for cigarettes and never came home. Okay, he's kind of funny, but he highlights two examples here. One of them is AT&T and one of them is Standard Oil. What he doesn't highlight in this situation, and this is something I think that's very concerning for investors, what happens if these big tech companies get broken up? Well, you can also look at history as a lesson here. John D. Rockefeller was one of the richest Americans to ever live, one of the richest people in the world to ever live. He would have been kind of like the Elon Musk of our time. He controlled a huge portion of the U.S. GDP through his ownership of Standard Oil. This was the massive monopolistic oil company of the day. And the government came in, just like John Oliver is suggesting here, they broke up Standard Oil into over 30 different companies And John D. Rockefeller's wealth went up. It went up dramatically. His actual net worth increased dramatically since the breakup because all those individual companies continued to grow. Some of them grew to large size, and he owned a stake in all of those companies because of the breakup. So John Oliver leaves out some key details here with his own example of the standard oil breakup. Rockefeller became more wealthy after the breakup. The companies that it was broken into from standard oil are still monopolies. We have Chevron, Exxon, Mobil, we have one company that was purchased by BP. Is that any less of a monopoly? Do these companies really compete with each other? And finally, did this breakup even help consumers? The answer is no. In fact, research on the subject concludes that the breakup of Standard Oil likely didn't benefit consumers at all. Quote, in the years since, research has confirmed that the breakup had little effect on consumer prices. They have this in a 1958 paper, Predatory Price Cutting, the Standard Oil New Jersey case. And they also say that the entire premise was likely incorrect. Judging from the record, Standard Oil did not use predatory price discrimination to drive out competing refiners, nor did it price practice have that effect. So even looking at one of his examples here, Standard Oil, the breakup didn't cause oil to become cheaper. And we know it's not cheaper today because there's Exxon and there's Chevron, still expensive. All it did was make John D. Rockefeller wealthier by having them as separate entities. So I think this premise that breaking up these big companies automatically benefits consumers is questionable. Many of these big companies like Amazon, they get to this massive scale, they did it by offering incredible customer service, free returns, and the cheapest prices possible. That's really good for consumers. That's difficult to beat. That's the reason that Amazon is so big is because of the value they offer to consumers. It's the same thing with Costco. Costco is of massive scale. It's the biggest warehouse company in the world. That is because the value they offer to consumers. So breaking them up in an attempt to help consumers 
I think is a very difficult argument to make. Now, after setting the stage that these companies can be broken up and it's a good thing throughout history, even though I disagree with the entire premise, I don't think it's always good to break up companies. And I think history actually kind of proves that. It doesn't necessarily benefit the consumer. But regardless, let's go on to his primary argument. It's about how these companies do something called self-preferencing. It's when companies unfairly favor their own products on their own platforms, which have now become so big that most of us have no choice but to use them. This is a particularly big problem with these three companies. And we're going to start with Apple. So he starts off by saying it's particularly a problem with these three companies, which if you can't see it, it's Apple, Amazon, and Google. Interesting to me that he leaves out Facebook and and he leaves out Microsoft. I noticed this. This is something I love about Microsoft. Anytime one of the kind of like political talking heads or Congress or anybody in this category is going after big tech, somehow Microsoft's left out. Like they're not anti-competitive. They don't have a wide moat. They certainly don't protect and self-preference themselves, which is just frankly ridiculous. He says it's particularly an issue with these three companies, which which means to me, John Oliver isn't familiar with big tech. At least he doesn't look at this a lot, which makes sense because Microsoft is highly preferential of their own stuff. They, they self-preference more than probably any of these three companies. Look at Microsoft Azure Cloud. The reason that that's growing faster than Amazon, AWS, when Amazon had a six-year lead is because Microsoft self-preferences their cloud storage over anyone else's. They make it super easy to do integration uploads. That is self-preferencing to a massive scale. They're literally growing in cloud at a a more rapid pace than the industry leader that has a six-year head start simply because of self-preferencing. And Microsoft probably has the biggest history of pushing out competitors, buying other companies, gobbling up competition. They bought LinkedIn, which was an absolute still. They're buying Activision Blizzard, become the, the second biggest gaming company in the world. And they never get mentioned in any of this. They're never brought into the conversation. They never have Sasha Nadella going before Congress testifying about it. It's always Facebook, Amazon, Google, and Apple, never Microsoft. And I think that's something to pay attention to as investors. If you're investing in Microsoft, you're getting a company with a wide moat, super super huge competitive advantage, a ton of self-preferencing like these other companies, but they don't get punished for it and they're not being looked at from regulators and from people like John Oliver. Now, having said that, let's go ahead and hear his argument out. He starts off with Apple and the App Store. And of course, Apple's App Store is a massive platform um, and he highlights the self-preferencing that Apple does here which is basically the only place to download software for your iPhone, which is already a little bit weird when you think about it, right? You can download any software you like to your desktop computer, but if you have an iPhone, Apple has set it up so that its app store is the only game in town. Okay. He's saying that if you have a computer, you can just download anything onto it, which is true, just a basic computer device, but Apple makes you go through the app store. And that's something that the comparison lots of people make. But that's not the only time that happens. There's many devices that have specific app stores just for those devices, like the Xbox. When you go to the Xbox, they're not letting you download PlayStation games on the Xbox. You have the Xbox store. That is a device specific to a specific app store. Apple does the same thing with their device. And the question is, is this a bad thing for the consumer? If this was a bad thing for the consumer, that'd be hard to argue why it grew to the biggest, most powerful company in the world, based on this premise. I think that it's fair to argue that Apple grew in part because they had such strict control over the App Store experience. They make it so that you don't download malware. 
junk apps, multiple stores with multiple payment processes, which is confusing, not a great experience for users. So while he's trying to instantly phrase this as a bad thing, this is what drove people to have a preference to Apple. The simplicity of having one app store, one payment processor work for everything, and having it be very rigorous, very difficult to get in this app store, making it very unlikely that you have scammy apps, you have malware, or you have any problems with any of the apps that you're using. Apple's notoriously difficult to get into. Their app store is by far more difficult. As a developer, I worked for both uh, Android apps and I worked on Apple apps. And it was always more difficult to get an app in the app store. And the reason why is they just look at them more carefully. So this is arguable. Again, he's phrasing this all like it's a negative thing that Apple has such uh, strict control over this. But you have the alternative. You have Android. And many people choose to buy Apple over Android specifically because of the way that Apple runs this. So consumers are voting with their wallets. They're choosing iPhones over Androids based on the way that Apple set this up. So again, the entire premise that John Oliver tries to instantly create, that it's a bad thing for consumers that Apple only has one app store on their phone, I think is very arguable. I know that if many of you have older parents, right? You have parents that are 60, 70, 80 years old and they have an iPhone. It's tough enough to to offer tech support to them with just one app store, just one place to update all your apps, one safe place to download all their apps. Imagine if they are trying to use a phone, someone that's not tech savvy, and they have to have a different entire app store for every different app that they download with a different payment processor, a different user interface, different rules, right? That is going to be a complete mess. That's part of the reason that people, again, prefer the iPhone, the simplicity of it. It is a huge selling point of it. And I do not agree that it's a, a, a just a bad thing for Apple. But let's go ahead and jump into what he specifically highlights, which I think is more of a dicey territory, which is the payment processor. And Apple has been accused of unfairly pushing its own apps to the top of search results. Now, the company denies doing this, but the Wall Street Journal found Apple apps that generate revenue through subscriptions or sales like music or books showed up first in 95% of searches related to those apps. If Apple's doing this, they need to end it. If someone searches Netflix or they search HBO Max, it should not pop up with Apple TV Plus first. That's something that's just entirely unfair. Uh, If they're doing that, they need to end that. Uh, Apple said that they're not doing that. They only show their app first if someone just searches mail, right? Because a lot of people that want the default uh, Apple apps, they, they just search the general term, which is the exact name of those apps. So it's kind of a nuanced territory there. But I agree with John Oliver on this point. If Apple is just pushing up the results of their apps above competitors when they're searching different keywords... I think that should be ended. But he goes on to the bigger issue, which is the money, the payment processor. But regardless, perhaps more important is the stranglehold that Apple has on developers who want to get their apps onto your phone because they are required to use Apple's payment processor, which takes a huge piece of every dollar that customers spend on those apps and any digital purchases within them. So he says that Apple has a stranglehold on developer and they take their 30% cut. And this is the clip that he shows. This is from the Wall Street Journal. And just keep track of the date here. It says 2020, okay? So it's two years ago. This is what he highlights on his recent clip, which he filmed just last week. So he's using a clip from 2020 from the Wall Street Journal. But John Oliver did this segment just last week. Apple takes a 30% commission on sales of apps and in-app purchases. So if an app costs $4.99 up front, 
Apple collects $1.50. Same goes for if you use an app to buy digital goods, like virtual weapons, or sign up for a subscription to a monthly service. It's true, and that was pretty shocking to me, because it means that every time someone spent money on the Jeremy Renner app, something real people actually did to boost their posts about him so they could hashtag be seen by Jeremy Renner. Again, something human beings wanted in amounts ranging from $1.99 to nearly $100 actual dollars. Apple got a cut of that, and that is blood money right there. <laughs> Apple makes literally billions... Okay. I just want to highlight one thing here. He says that is shocking to him that Apple took a 30% cut of transactions in their app store on their iPhone. Why is this shocking to John Oliver that a, a store within a platform would take a cut of the sales? That happens on almost every platform in existence in the world throughout all of time. Every time you go into a retail store, you go into a mall, you go into a grocery store, they're taking a cut of every sale. They don't just let you go in and buy things uh, uh, and, and take no gain out of it, how would Walmart function or Costco? How would Amazon function if it, if it sold items and it didn't take a cut of it? Every digital store does the same. Twitch TV takes half of the subscription money. YouTube takes 45% of donations through it. They have an ad revenue sharing program of 45%. You have the Microsoft Xbox store that, that takes, I believe, around 30%, the same as the App Store. Every store in existence does this, whether it's digital or physical. They all take a cut of things sold within the store. It's very rare for them to do it for free. Even in most business-to-business applications, anytime there's a store or a platform, there's some type of economic sharing model. So it's not out of this world for Apple to do it. They're not unique in doing this. And I don't know why John Oliver pretends like this is shocking, right? It's shocking that people are buying a Jeremy Renner app, but it's not shocking that Apple is taking a fee taking a cut out of something sold in their store. Now, another thing that I wanted you to pay attention to, and I hope you did, because he shared this clip. Let's go back to here. Again, it says 2020 right there. You can't really see it, but that is important because John Oliver used a clip two years ago from the Wall Street Journal, over two years ago, and he doesn't mention in this segment that Apple's actually changed their stance substantially on this subject. Apple let media apps avoid the 30% fee after global scrutiny. So they're letting media companies, which are music, video, newspaper apps, avoid that 30% fee. Apple's doing this ahead of other companies. If you go on to Twitch, if you go on to uh, Microsoft Xbox, you can't avoid the fee. With Apple's App Store, you can now. Another example John Oliver highlights on this topic that is out of date is Netflix. On your iPhone and you don't have an account, you get a message reading, trying to join Netflix. You can't sign up for Netflix in the app. We know it's a hassle. After you remember, you can start watching in the app. And you can see why Netflix would do that. It doesn't want to lose a third of its subscription revenue to Apple because... This is an example of how misleading or uninformed John Oliver can be about these segments. It's true that Netflix did have this message for some time, but it's been changed. And it was changed before John Oliver filmed this segment June 13th. I look at my Netflix app right here. Let me bring it up for you so you can see it. Right there, this is Netflix. There is a button on the bottom says netflix.com slash join. You can tap that. And Apple has a little warning that says you're about to leave the app to go to an external website. You will no longer be transacting through Apple. You can hit continue right there. And it brings up Netflix's website to now start your, your onboarding process. So this entire example, this entire premise here that John Oliver is sharing with hundreds of thousands of millions of people isn't even the case anymore. And it wasn't the case when he made this episode, when it aired June 13th. 
Apple had changed their policy long before that. They allow Netflix and other reader apps similar to it to link outside of their store and start the onboarding process bypassing their 30% fee. He doesn't highlight that updated stance or policy because it doesn't make Apple look quite as bad. Another important detail that John Oliver seemingly omits, he forgets to mention here, I think again conveniently, is that after the first year where Apple charges their 30%, every subsequent year after the very first year, it's cut to 15%. That's just something that's important. People need to know that Apple doesn't charge 30% in perpetuity if they're talking about Apple store policy. But John Oliver never mentions this because it doesn't paint Apple in such a bad light. I think that's the reason that he leaves it out. It doesn't help support the argument that he's making. So these type of omissions that Apple does lower their fee after the first year and these type of mistakes, whatever you want to call it, that John Oliver is making by not mentioning that Apple's completely changed their stance on this months ago, and they do allow apps like Netflix to link outside of the app in the App Store, that is something that I think is worthy of mention. John Oliver never mentions it. Now, before we jump into the next segment here, I have to give a quick shout out to our sponsor today. It's FTX US. They're one of the largest US regulated cryptocurrency exchanges, and they're doing this big sponsorship push right now. You've probably heard of them because of other YouTubers and podcasts. They're sponsoring people like Tom Brady, Kevin O'Leary, the Miami Heat Arena is named after them now. Uh, With all the, the kind of craziness going on in cryptocurrency right now, all the volatility, They are one of the most stable companies. It's actually reliable. They recently just raised $400 million. So they're they're very financially sound and they raised that at a $32 billion uh, valuation. And most people know about them as a cryptocurrency exchange where you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies incrementally or on schedule with very minimal fees. That's what they're most known for. And it's true you can do that. What they really wanted me to get word out about is their new stock trading platform. It is just a simple stock brokerage It works very well. You can go into any stock and you can type in the fractional share you want to buy and sell or if you want to buy and sell a whole share anytime the market's open. There's no trading fees. uh, There's no payment for order flow. And I've been one of the testers for this and it's worked flawlessly. I haven't had a single problem with it. And right now, if you sign up using the Carlson refer code, so on the refer code, if you type in Carlson, my last name, you'll get $10 credited to you upon a $100 deposit. So you instantly kick things off with a 10% return. So sign up now. There's a link in the description and the pinned comment of this video. Type in the code Carlson that helps support the channel by letting them know that I sent you and that gives you something in return, that $10 when you deposit 100 Now let's go ahead and look at what he highlights as the biggest example of self-preferencing abuse by these big tech companies. And it's none other than than my biggest holding, my favorite company of the bunch, the one that I think is currently the most undervalued, which is Amazon. Arguably, the company most guilty of self-preferencing is Amazon, founded, of course, by a man rich enough to buy absolutely anything, including, seemingly, the rights to Pitbull's identity. (laughs) Amazon reportedly... Jeff Bezos is... He's checked out of Amazon. I think it was... I think it's viewed as a, I view it as a positive thing when someone like Jeff Bezos has, has moved on from operating the business and he knows it. He understands his priorities are elsewhere. He's on a, a giant yacht, right? The size of a city. Um, he's got his new uh, uh, girlfriend, his girl there. Uh, his priorities are elsewhere and it's time for him to take a, a back seat. And that's exactly what he did. So I think it was a good move for Jeff Bezos to move out of the CEO role and have Jassy do it. Um, but regardless, uh, John Oliver jumps in here to, I think, the real the real problems with Amazon. And I want to go through where I agree with him on this and where I disagree. 
It controls 65 to 70 percent of all U.S. online marketplace sales. It hosts about 2.3 million active third-party sellers from all around the world. And to those sellers, like... He just breezes over that. But I want to just rewind for one second there. They host 2.3 million active third-party sellers. Now, John Oliver just breezes over that, but that should be a positive thing. These are 2.3 million businesses, small businesses built on Amazon, on their platform. So when people talk negatively about Amazon, destroying jobs, destroying middle America, just putting out all these small businesses, you have to remind them, Amazon does not just have their big store where they sell everything themselves, like a Walmart. Walmart, you go into there, and there's not... uh, many third-party sellers in the Walmart store. What they're selling is Hershey's, Procter & Gamble, Campbell's Soup, right? They're selling the stuff from the big companies, not many small mom mom and pop businesses. Amazon doesn't really do that. Amazon hosts millions and millions of third-party sellers that, that use their platform as a way to run their business. And they have grown that platform to enormous size. They can support their family with it. Uh, Many of these companies are just mom and pop businesses. And it's incredible. I liken it to that of YouTube. YouTube is a benefit for the creators. I can run a YouTube channel full time now. I quit my day job to do it. So you can actually go on these platforms, operate a small family business with it. And that's something incredible that these companies like Amazon and Google and YouTube give you the opportunity to do. You can run an entire business based off of the platform that they've created. This is unlike a lot of other companies that are no longer in the limelight, like the Walmarts. You can't really run a business off of Walmart. There's really no way to do that. Um, So when I look at this, I view this as a positive thing. I think that Amazon is doing something good for their sellers. Many of them are running massive businesses based off of their platform. You can go on YouTube and look at videos of all the people starting businesses and doing reselling and third-party selling on Amazon. It is an incredible ecosystem that employs a lot of people. So he breezes over this in one second, but I again think that this is something positive that needs to be highlighted. Amazon employs many, many small businesses. And to those sellers, like this man who sold sporting goods, it is close to the only game in town. You've got to be on Amazon. You have to be there because that's where everyone is. That 100 million Prime subscribers. Amazon. 200 million uh, now. So that guy has, uh, I think this might be an old clip that John Oliver is sharing as well. Um, there's 200 million Prime subscribers. And this part is dead accurate. If you want to run an online business and you're not on Amazon, you are missing out on like 50% of the market. I've gone on to Twitter calls where I've listened to different people that operate online businesses that do multiple millions in sales. They have their Shopify store. They have their Amazon outlet. They have Walmart. And they're selling on all three of them. They say that they're glad if they make $100 in one day on Shopify. They're glad if they have three people visit on walmart.com And they're making tens of thousands of dollars a day in sales on Amazon. They said there's no competition. You cannot beat out Amazon with Shopify or Walmart.com. It's not even close. So this entire segment from John Oliver, at least the video clip he's sharing, I think is 100% accurate so far. Executives have told us that there are many other options out there. There is Walmart. There is Alibaba. As a seller, you've got options. I've heard that response from Amazon executives before. And we did that. We were listed, we listed all of our products on every other online marketplace. All of the others that were non-Amazon combined did about 10% of what we were doing on Amazon. That is not an anecdotal outlier example. That is the common experience. From what I've seen, 
people that have their their presence in Amazon and they try to sell Shopify, Walmart.com, any other outlet, they get almost no traffic anywhere else. They have to be on Amazon. So this is kind of a problem because Amazon is so big. They're so dominant of the online retail space that they do control a lot of the rules here. And this is kind of where I start to agree with John Oliver. I think this is problematic, uh, even though there's different ways to address it. But continuing on, so far, I do agree with them. And for a third-party seller, the most important thing in the world is something called the buy box. It's that little box that shows up on any Amazon product page where you can instantly click to buy. So when we search for Duracell AAA batteries, we got this page. And here is the buy box right here, uh, where with just one click, we could buy a pack for $14. And you might assume that that is the best deal. But if you click on this little box below, you can see multiple other sellers who are offering the same product, many at a lower price. He goes on to highlight that nobody does that. And I don't either. I don't think anybody does that. Um, When you just see the product you want, you see it at a reasonable price, most people just hit buy. That's the amazing part about Amazon. That's why this company is so successful is they've they've gotten rid of all, uh, all friction with buying. And I recognize this 15 years ago. I recognized this in, in 2010. Um, you know, I, I recognize that this company had something special where you could just buy something with a single click, never even having to put in your payment information. They already seemed to know what I want. That was 10 years ago when I found out about this company, how great it was. Unfortunately, I didn't have an investor mindset then, but I don't think much has changed with Amazon. They make it so it's frictionless to purchase these items most people aren't going to shop for a couple of pennies more to get it from a third-party seller. They'll just pick the Amazon Prime item where they know they're getting it from a reasonable price. It's going to be there likely in 12 hours, the next day, the next morning, and they're going to have the item they want with zero problems. That's what most people want. Amazon continually delivers on that. But John Oliver here is highlighting that this is a problem because nobody goes on to these other sellers. Nobody's buying from them. Only one seller gets to be in that box. And nobody except Amazon knows how its algorithm picks the winner. But it sure seems to consistently favor Amazon. With one analysis, finding that the company chose itself for the buy box for about 40% of products, while the next highest seller got in just half of 1% of popular products. So this is where John Oliver does highlight something else I agree with. Um, Amazon... If their algorithm, again, features their own products above competitors unfairly, meaning if they have a special rule written in their their algorithm that says, hey, if it's an Amazon product, if it's one that we make, bump it up in the results, that is entirely unfair. It should be changed. That's something that I think regulators should say. You cannot do that. Uh, It's the same thing with favoring Apple apps in the App Store. I don't think that if you search an app, Apple should be favored. I think it should just be fair game. They're operating the store and what you search should get the best result. And I actually think this should be in the benefit of Amazon. If you think about it, when you search an item, you want the best item. Whatever's algorithmically fairly the best item, the best result. So it shouldn't naturally just be whatever's an Amazon item because that might not be the best one. And Amazon should work diligently to connect you with exactly what you're looking for, the best item with the best reviews and the best pricing. So I agree with John Oliver on this assumption here. I think that Amazon should not favor their own products over others, but this report is trying to suggest that they are, that they're favoring their own products. And even when the buy box did go to a third-party seller, nine out of 10 times, it went to those that used Amazon's shipping service fulfilled by Amazon. Basically, it is Amazon's playground They make the rules and they do seem to win a lot of the time. He highlights that as another potential problem that 
Uh, nine times out of 10, the people choose to use Amazon shipping service. But that's not just random chance. That's not because they're favoring it. That's because people like Amazon's shipping service. I know for a fact, when I go into Amazon and I order items, I do not order non-primed items. I order items fulfilled by Amazon because I know that if they're fulfilled by Amazon, I will get it in a day. If it's fulfilled by someone else, I don't know when I'm going to get it. I might order the item and get it three days later. It might be the wrong one, right? Amazon built out this incredible logistics shipping service that gives you the item in one day. And it makes sense that people have preference over that. So I don't think that that's unfair at all. They built a better service. More people are picking it because they want their items fulfilled by Amazon. But regardless, the big claim here that John Oliver's making is that Amazon is preferencing their own items. Now, Amazon says that they're not doing that. They're not preferencing their own items. And one reason that I have to actually believe Amazon over John Oliver on this subject is Amazon's quarterly report. We can look at what they're preferencing. We can look at what's growing sales faster. We have online stores, okay? This is just Amazon's first-party online stores. This made up $51 billion of sales last quarter. That is a decline year-over-year of 1%. So Amazon, with their first-party sales, meaning the stuff that they create, they make, and they sell, that actually declined year-over-year. They lost ground on that. And then you have the third-party seller services. So this is third-party sales, that went up 9%. So third-party sellers grew their sales by 9% last quarter. First-party sales declined by 1%. And then if you go back every single quarter, third-party sales have grown faster every single quarter for the past year and a half over first-party. So Amazon clearly isn't preferencing their own items too much because it's growing at a slower rate than third-party sellers. Their third-party sellers on their platform are growing faster. That is something that I'd like to ask John Oliver. If Amazon was trying to preference their first party items, the things that they create and they sell over their third party sellers, then why is first party sales growing at a slower rate and actually declining when third party sales are growing 7, 9%, 13%, 12%, growing at a much faster rate? Moreover, why would Amazon want to preference their own items over third party sellers when third party sellers have a higher margin of earning for Amazon? That doesn't even economically make sense. So again, many of the premises that John Oliver is making don't make sense, and they're not even in the data. If Amazon was preferencing their own items, you would expect them to grow their sales quicker than their third-party sellers. Now, this next point that John Oliver brings up, I think is a very common one, and people are very critical of Amazon. This is what I hear the most criticism regarding Amazon, and it's Amazon ripping off items of other sellers on their platform, basically just copying the items one for one and then selling them at a discount. And John Oliver highlights, I think, a very, a very good example of this. Take a small company called Peak Design. It made this camera bag. And when it noticed a suspiciously similar bag being sold by Amazon, it made this pretty decent snarky video in response. This is the Everyday Sling by Peak Design, and this is the Everyday Sling by Amazon Basics. It looks suspiciously like the Peak Design Everyday Sling, but you don't have to pay for all those needless bells and whistles, like years of research and development, recycled blue sign approved materials, a lifetime warranty, fairly paid factory workers, and total carbon neutrality. Instead, you just get a bag designed by the crack team at the Amazon Basics department. Okay, so Amazon Basics, the team that works on that, looked at this item, and the suggestion here is that they look at the analytics, they saw that this item was selling good, uh, that it had high margins or whatever, because Amazon technically has that data, 
And even though they're not supposed to use that data, that's in their own policies, uh, the suggestion here is that they're using that data to make a copy of this peak design bag, a one-for-one -one just basic copy of it, and they're selling it at a discount. And they, they bypass all the research and, and development that went into this bag. And at a surface level, what John Oliver is suggesting here and what this peak design company is suggesting is atrocious. Amazon should never be doing that. They should never be using their platform to get information about the bag that is not open to the public, like the sales numbers, the margins on it, uh, you know, that type of thing. They shouldn't really be using that information to aid themselves. And that is a huge problem if they're doing that. The problem is there's no evidence to conclude that Amazon actually used proprietary data, stuff that only they know because of their platform to copy the bag design. After all, this is a bag. Amazon could have just bought one of the bags, gave it to their team and had them replicate it without using any type of uh, proprietary information, sales information. They could have just seen on Amazon that it had a lot of reviews and tried to replicate the item. That is, after all, what every company does. They look at something that sells really well, that sells for a high price and seemingly has good margins, and they try to rip it off. That's not something that just Amazon does. If you go to Costco, you'll have Kirkland Signature brand, and it's often next to almost everything else that's higher priced. Kirkland Signature diapers, Kirkland Signature wipes, Kirkland Signature peanuts, Kirkland Signature uh, every single thing that you can buy, there's a Kirkland Signature version of it in Costco. Did Costco use proprietary information to steal the designs of all these different products that they're replicating? No, they can just observe it. They can do the exact same thing. There's really nothing to suggest that Amazon actually used proprietary information for this. And I think that this is the problem here. They're saying, Peak Design is saying, that they believe Amazon actually infringed on intellectual property. That's different. If Amazon actually stole intellectual property, then Peak Design should sue Amazon. Uh, they chose to deal with it in a different way, which I think is fine. A video that mocked Amazon and Amazon ended up taking the item off. So mission accomplished. But the point stands here. There's really no evidence whatsoever to conclude that Amazon used any special information other than what's easily observable to the general public. They copied a basic design for bag. If you go onto Amazon, there's a million backpacks that look relatively the same, almost as if they're all stealing each other's design. There's shoes that look relatively the same. There's shirts and jackets and and slings and, and shoulder bags and all different things that look almost the same between one company to another. And copying other people's design is something that's happened in markets for long periods of time. This is nothing new with Amazon. Another thing that I'd like to point out is, while the media likes to focus on Amazon stealing designs as the big problem, I've talked personally, personally with people that sell over a million dollars per year on Amazon, and they say that Amazon Basics is not the biggest threat by far. The biggest threat to them getting their designs ripped off is China. Chinese sellers rip off designs of US created products more than anyone. They sell them as a complete replicate and they don't have to have Amazon's proprietary information to do that. So as you hear about Amazon being the primary target, realize that what sellers, what most of them actually state is the bigger issue is Chinese knockoffs of their items. They're much more prevalent. They're much more aggressive. They copy them to a higher degree and they don't have that proprietary information from Amazon. So overall, I think that's the gist of it. John Oliver, I think, does a great job on bringing this topic up to a broad audience in a humorous way, but I think he hurts his own argument by not bringing updated, relevant changes to policies like Apple's App Store, allowing different companies like Netflix to link out directly from the app 
to a third-party payment solution. He doesn't bring up that there's really no evidence to support that in that case of that bag, that commercial, that Amazon may have just copied it without having any proprietary information. He doesn't bring up that China copies sellers at a very aggressive rate, arguably much more than what Amazon does with their own sellers. He doesn't bring up much context of comparable companies outside of big tech that charge very similar fees for their products and services. And he also relies heavily on a major premise that I think is unsupported. And he shares this throughout this entire segment, that breaking up these big tech companies is both good for consumers and for competition. But in his own example, Standard Oil, that did not benefit consumers by breaking up Standard Oil. There's no evidence to that. It didn't make the shareholders any less wealthy. It actually increased the wealth of Rockefeller. And I don't think it caused any more competition. The same oil companies that were created by the breakup are the same ones we have now, ExxonMobil and Chevron. And in terms of competition, the big talk here is that these monopolies, right? Tech monopoly means that they're indestructible. Nobody can compete with them. But look at what happened to Facebook's stock just over the past year. It's down 50%. The company's stock price has collapsed because of competition, because TikTok came rolling in. Out of nowhere, out of China, this company comes in and in a couple years has billions of users and is still in engagement from Facebook from Instagram. And then there's the example of Apple. While this company I consider to have a wide moat right now, and it seems to be on the bleeding edge of technology, they make the best devices and the best phones. That's the reason that people love them. That doesn't mean the company's indestructible and it has no risk of competition. Competition could disrupt Apple. If companies like Huawei out of China start making Competing phones operate at the same speeds, with the same specs, and the same cameras at cheaper prices. They could gain rapid market share just like TikTok did with Facebook. They can rapidly change the landscape in only a short amount of time. The dominance of these tech companies is something that's of kind of the recent past, just the past 10 to 15 years. Throughout the greater history, you can see how much this bounces around from oil companies to financial companies. Uh, you have retailers like Walmart. Then you have Amazon and Microsoft and Apple and Facebook. And while they've reigned supreme for the past five years, there's no guarantee they'll do that in the future. You can look at the example of Facebook that's had its stock price crushed over the past year. You can look at the example of Netflix, one of the stock market's favorite companies, dominant in streaming, insurmountable lead. And now it's being outcompeted by many other companies. So capitalism is brutal and there's no guarantee that these companies will remain in the position they are in the future. So I think that needs to be taken into account. We don't necessarily have to destroy every big company that's become a monopoly for a certain amount of time. Chances are their monopoly will be destroyed by competition. But anyways, that's my thoughts overall on this John Oliver segment on big tech. Let me know what you think about these type of segments where I react and give a different opinion and perspective and different context to these type of subjects, because I think it's important. But um, having said that, that's all for now, and I'll see you in the next one.